My family and I were recently walking through a nature trail back in the town that I grew up in over in Louisville, Kentucky rather recently. As we began to head down this path, I saw out of the corner of my eye a brown chicken crossing a nearby two-lane road. Now, you really can't make this up, a chicken crossing a road, and I knew that when I told you about this that you probably wouldn't believe me, and so I got a picture of it with my iPhone just to validate that this really did happen. Well, as soon as we saw this chicken, my wife immediately said, Patrick, why don't you run over there and pick it up and bring it back for us to look at? Well, I thought to myself, how hard could it really be? I mean, it, it, I can do that in no time, right? Well, 45 minutes later, uh, after cornering this chicken up against a fence, I bent down to pick it up. And I mean, I was tired. I was exhausted, but I was proud of this catch. And so I ran over and showed it to my family and uh, put it right in front of my son's face. I mean, his eyes were just as big as anything. And, And then I turned to my wife and I thought she was going to say, way to go, Patrick. So proud of you. What a great catch. Instead, she said, well, what are we going to do with it now? We can't just let it go. Now, husbands, you know when your wife says we, (laughs) what she really means is you, right? And so the next thing I realize, I am walking up and down different streets in this neighborhood that I grew up in, knocking on people's doors, seeing if they know who owns this chicken. Well, this happened for about 30 minutes, and I am flat out exhausted at this point. I'm sweating. I just want to be back with my family. I don't want this chicken to be harmed in any way. I'm I do love animals and I did care for it, but I just didn't want it to be my responsibility. And so at that point, I I came to the end of myself and I realized that I had four different options of what I could do with this chicken. Now, before I tell you what I did next, I want to tell you the options that I foresaw in my mind and let you determine what I should have done, okay? Option number one was this. I could have kept knocking on people's doors and searched for the rightful owner of this chicken. Option number two, I could have just let the chicken go. My wife would have been mad at me. Number three, um, I could have taken that chicken home with me and done who knows what with it. Or option number four, I could have found a random screened-in porch of someone's house and just just gently placed the chicken inside there, giving that responsibility to somebody else. Now, before I tell you what I did next, why don't you go ahead and turn to the person beside you and inform them what you would have done had you been in my shoes that day. Go ahead and do that now. Lots of laughter up in here. Somebody said they would take it home for chicken and dumplings. Uh, Okay. 
How many of you brief show fans would have kept knocking on people's doors looking for the rightful owner? Two of you. Okay. <laughs> Number two, how many of you would have just let that chicken go? You could have cared less about it. Right, that, that's logical thing to do, but your wife would have been mad at you, okay? Uh, number three, you would have taken that chicken home with you and done who knows what with it. A few farmers in the room. Very good. Don't be embarrassed. Um, how many of you would have felt the leading of God to have um, <laughs> found a screened-in porch and just placed that chicken gently inside there? And that, those are the Christians in the room, Okay. So what I ended up doing next, you need to understand, I love animals, and, and I love to give gifts to people that I've, that I've never met before. <laughs> and so the next thing I realized, what I'm doing, I'm knocking on someone's door, they aren't home, I find myself venturing towards their backyard, I want to go hang out with my family, I don't know what else to do, and so I, I open up their screened-in porch, <laughs> and I, I just gently place the chicken inside there thinking, you know what, they're going to come home, and I'm sure that they love animals. I'll just, I'll, I'll give that chicken to them. And, and this is perhaps more of a confession uh, of time for me, because I was completely unsure what to do with this chicken. I mean, I wanted him to be safe. I, I, I did care for his life, but I, again, I, so what I ended up doing was just placing him someplace, hoping that somebody else would come along and take care of him. I, I abandoned him. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've ever been a part of a church before. I don't know if you even believe in God. Perhaps you proudly label yourself what's called a nun. But it could be that you look back on your time spent with us Christians and you kind of felt like you were treated like that chicken. I mean, you were cared for for a little while. You felt embraced for the time being. But then once you started asking some pretty tough questions about life and faith, it was as if they just dropped you off on some random screened-in porch. I mean, what you needed most was for somebody to sit down with you and answer some questions and to hear your story, but instead you felt abandoned, though their intention may have been that somebody more qualified would have come along and had conversations with you. Now, I want to start out today by confessing that there are many friends in my life who have different beliefs than me, and all too often I have responded in criticism, I have lacked grace, and I have lacked compassion towards them. And so I just want to say I'm sorry to those of you they're still a little bit skeptical of this whole Jesus thing. Now, last week, if you weren't with us, we kicked off this brand new series that we're calling A, <clears throat> a Word to the Nuns. Now, if you're wondering what the nuns are, we're not talking about a group of Catholic women here, okay? The, the nuns are a rising group of Americans who don't have any identification with a local church or Jesus himself. Now, the thing is, many nuns have been a part of a church at some point in their life. And so the group of nuns, more specifically, that we're going to look at today are those who say, I can't know that God exists. They're the people in our life who are maybe a little bit skeptical and doubting of God's existence altogether. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to as agnostics. Now, we as Christians who have rather strong convictions struggle to understand how anybody can ever doubt what seems to be so obvious to us. Maybe that's why the New Testament book of Jude, verse 22, says that we are to be merciful towards those who doubt. And yet the thing is, haven't we all been there before? And maybe before you came to faith in Christ, you had this moment where you looked up at the sky and you said, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, will you make yourself obvious to me in some way? 
Or maybe this past year you lost your job and on your way home in the car, you cried out to God, Lord, if you are really sovereign, if you are really in control, why did you allow this to happen on your watch? Now you see, doubt is natural. And at the same time, it creates room for God to come in and make himself more known than ever before. Hebrews chapter 11 says that God uh, earnestly rewards those who sincerely seek him. And so the thing is this, doubt is not the rejection of faith, but it's an invitation for belief. Doubt is not the rejection of faith, but it's an invitation for belief. And really, that's what we're going to get at today. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up with me to the New Testament book of 2 Peter. Second Peter um, <clears throat> is towards the very back of your Bibles, right in between the book of First Peter and First John. And uh, if you don't know where that is, there's a table of contents in the very front of your Bibles. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 1, starting out in verse 16. Uh, but if there was anyone more, I don't think there was anybody more qualified to address skepticism and doubt than the author of this book, a guy by the name of Peter. He had his moments of doubt. And I think he could identify with what author Dale Fincher says that when he says that doubt is a discipline in soul formation. And so what Peter would do is throughout the ministry of Jesus, he had a life-on-life relationship with him. Even in those moments, he doubted his existence. He doubted who he really was. And yet something happened because at the end of his life, he was willing to die because he was that convinced that Jesus really was the Son of God. And so if you're in 2 Peter, pick up in chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what Peter tells this group of Christians. Now understand, first of all, that they are encountering a lot of persecution at this point and false teaching. As a result, these two two components are causing them to doubt their beliefs. And so Peter parachutes in and says, hey, here's how we can know what we believe is true. Verse 16. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses is important. You might want to underline that. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now understand that Peter here is referring to what's called the transfiguration that's recorded in Matthew 17 when Jesus allowed some of his disciples to witness a supernatural meeting between himself, the prophet Elijah, and Moses. Now when this happened, a voice from heaven came down as God says, look, Jesus really is my son. He is who he says he is. And I want you to know that I'm really proud of him. And so Peter had this front row seat to experience the glory of God. Now, let me press pause there for just a moment. Maybe it's stories like this that make the Bible really hard for you to believe. I mean, right? And there's a part of me that can't blame you. I mean, a few dead guys show up on a mountain that a voice from heaven is heard saying, uh, hey, Jesus is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, that just sounds a little bit odd if you look at it on the surface. Now, before you follow that thought too far, Let me ask you this question. Could it be, could it be that the fact that Scripture includes far-fetched accounts like this make it more believable? How's that? Well, I'll tell you this, the Bible doesn't read like a lie. I mean, suppose you were responsible for compiling all the stories that were to be included in the Bible. Wouldn't it just make sense to skim over everything that seemed the slightest bit unbelievable? Look at verse 19. 
Peter continues to say, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it. Now, the Greek word that is translated from the phrase completely reliable can also mean unshakable foundation. And so Peter is saying right here, he says, under scrutiny, under investigation, the testimony of Christ found within the Holy Scriptures remains strong and will endure through any opposition. A French philosopher by the name of Voltaire was a brilliant atheist. Uh, He spent a majority of his life trying to disprove uh, the Bible and ridiculing Scripture. Well, at one point in his career, he penned these words. He said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. He wrote that in 1776. Now, the Bible also says that God will not be mocked. You see, after Voltaire died for nearly 100 years, his homestead was used as the book depository, get this, for the French Bible Society. This was a group that sold scripture out of his house. Now you see, if there's anything that history has shown us, it's that the Bible will endure and thrive through all adversity. Therefore, someone who has discouraged you from doubting in the past may also be the same person who has lost confidence in the word of God. Remember, doubt is not the rejection of faith, but it's an invitation for belief. And so if you find yourself questioning the authenticity of the Bible, let me go ahead and encourage you to pursue those questions. Look at the rest of verse 19. Peter says, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable, which we already read, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, Jesus here is symbolically portrayed as a morning star, and as his followers, we are to eagerly anticipate his second and final coming. But in the meantime, Peter says, what we're supposed to do is to anchor ourselves to God's word because it is a firm foundation. And isn't that so needed today? I mean, the darker our world gets, the more we need to be reminded that this place is just temporary. You see, if there's one thing I know about God, is that he is not just some distant cosmic force that is immune to the pain that defines this world. You see, rather than running from suffering, God is somebody who actually runs towards it. And so what that means is that when you receive a phone call at 2 a.m. informing you that there's been an accident, When you head to the doctors and they tell you that there's nothing much they can do, when you wake up and your depression has come back stronger, when the divorce papers have been finalized and you sign them, you see it's in those moments that God specializes in showing up. Why? Because he's been there before. I used to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, until I realized there's a much deeper question taking place when someone asks that. And it's this. Why did a a horrific thing happen to a perfect God. And when I asked that question, I realized the answer was because of me. It's because of my sin. It's because of my pride, my gossip, my apathy, my idolatry. You see, those were the things that nailed Jesus to the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know if you are doubting the existence of God. I don't know where you stand in your relationship with Jesus, but here's the truth. Everybody in this room at some point in their life will encounter suffering of some sort, regardless of where you stand in your relationship with God. 
And so if that's true, and if you are doubting the existence of God altogether, let me just ask you this. Wouldn't it be much better to encounter suffering with the God of the universe on your side rather than apart from him? You see, of all things, suffering is something that God can identify with. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, he watched his one and only son be tortured and humiliated and, and, and crucified. Look at verse 20. Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along <clears throat> by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is saying that if, if truth were to be determined by us, it would be this moving target brought about by our emotions. Now, as Todd alluded to just a moment ago, this past week, we were in Los Angeles. And on one of the very first days, we could have done a lot of things while we were there. But because, because Todd was in charge of our itinerary, uh, we found ourselves in a graveyard at a cemetery. Now, what kind of sick person does that? <laughs> I mean, I was dying. And what I learned from that experience was that just because it was fun for him didn't mean it was for the rest of us. I was miserable. Todd was having a good time. I wanted to move on. He wanted to stay. I am a reasonable person who is patient and tolerant, and, and Todd makes a good effort at it. <clears throat> uh, but you know, what that really shows is that sometimes, sometimes we think that, that truth can, can at times be relative. And if that were the case, then if, if it were based upon emotions, each of us in Hollywood would have probably determined to do something different each that day. Why? Because we're all different people. We all have different feelings of what we wanted to do next. And there has to be something greater you see out there that determines what is absolute rather than just our experiences, our perspective, and our emotions. There has to be something bigger out there to say, hey, this is what it's all about. This is what is true. Um, I know that uh, in a room of this size, it would be nearly impossible for me to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everyone who is in a season of searching. And so what I thought I'd do for the remainder of our time today is to imagine that you and I were sitting down with one another at a restaurant. And um, after hearing your story, where you come from, and maybe what past experiences have, have helped form you, I'd ask you a few questions. And so if you, don't, if you don't believe in a God, or maybe you do but are unsure of who he is, the first question that I'd, that I'd ask you over a meal or a cup of coffee is this. What is your source of doubt? <clears throat> what is your source of doubt? Now you might question the existence of God because of a negative experience. You might ask, why could and how could a so-called loving and powerful God allow me to suffer now, perhaps your skepticism revolves around things that you learned in Sunday school, like a flood covering the earth, the Nile River turning the blood, and a man being swallowed by a giant fish. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that the original recipients of this letter that Peter was writing to were here with us today. I understand that none of them had ever met Jesus before face to face. A group of them had grown up Jewish and were told that the Messiah was going to be some political savior who would rescue them from the dominating Roman government. And so their entire life, they had painted in their minds a picture of what the promised one was going to look like and what he was going to be like. Now, back then, being a Jew wasn't just some family tradition that you took lightly. It was your identity. It was your life. It was every bit of who you were. 
And so one by one, the message of Jesus was presented to each of these soon-to-be Christians. And as Peter says in verse 16, it wasn't done in a flashy way. But at some point, these Jews had to decide. They had to decide, would they listen to those closest to them, reject Jesus, and continue waiting for the Messiah? Or or would they give their lives to a man who had supposedly defeated death just 40 years before And, you know, maybe at that time they ask, well, that sounds like a wonderful story, but where's the evidence? It's a good question that demands a response, by the way. I mean, after all, doubt is not the rejection of faith, but it's an invitation for belief. Upon hearing that question, I suppose Peter and some of the other uh, leaders who were there spoke up and said, well, let let me just put it this way. Here's what it all comes down to. I was there. I watched the Roman soldiers beat him to where he wasn't even recognizable. I saw them drive nails in his wrist. I watched him struggle to breathe as he hung upon that cross for several hours and I witnessed him take his last breath. And just when I thought that the world was going to end because it seemed like all hope was lost, three days later, Jesus said goodbye to his grave. This sounds absurd, but I walked with him. And so take it or leave it, it's your call. Now, there's no way for me to determine that this is exactly what happened next. But maybe at this point, a few Jews that were present for this testimony, one by one said, I'm in. I don't know what this means for me. I can't be 100% certain this is true, but I'm stepping out in faith. You see, it's when this group of not yet believers began asking questions that the truth became real to them. Why is that? Well, because doubt is not the opposite of faith, but it's an invitation for belief. And so I wonder if that could be your story today too. You see, doubting is a good place to start, but it's not a very good place to remain. And so my second question is a follow-up to that first question, and it's this. Where have your doubts taken you? Where have your doubts taken you? When you have questions, where do you go? Where do you turn? You see, the books that you read, the professors that you listen to end up shaping your beliefs. And so who is speaking into your life? You know, the truth is your doubts are only as good as your willingness to pursue the evidence from all different angles. Now, these churches that Peter was writing to, as I said before, had encountered persecution from the Roman emperor Nero. Now, needless to say, there was a large temptation to just throw in the towel and forfeit everything that they believed. But you see, history shows us that the persecution the church encountered at this time actually caused them to take their insecurities and take their doubts to one another, which in the end made them stronger. And so what ended, and so what intended to divide them ended up spreading the gospel. Later on, the early church, Father Tertullian wrote this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so when the heat was on, the strength to face death was found in community with one another. You see, the moment you start having some serious questions is the moment you ought to be running towards Christian community in the church. While answers may not always be given there, in community you'll see what following Jesus is all about. And that is why we elevate small groups here at Crossroads. You see, following Jesus is a personal decision that you must make on your behalf, but it's not private. If it's private, then eventually you'll die. 
And so it's meant to be done in community with one another. And if, and if that's where you're at, if you still have got a lot of questions and you need to surround yourself with community, then let me just encourage you to start to, to attend what's called Starting Point. And you can RSVP for that on your uh, uh, connection card, as Todd just alluded to. I, uh, <clears throat> I have a friend named Zachary who lives down in Texas. Now, Zachary has been an atheist for the past 15 years or so. Uh, when he first got to college, he was taught reasoning and had all these different philosophies thrown at him. Well, it was at that time that he began to really doubt his faith and questioned what he had grown up so accustomed with. But sadly, the only people in his life that really ran towards him in, in that moment were those on his college dorm room floor who had already rejected God in their life. And so about a year ago, we're out to lunch, and I looked at him across the table, and I said something that I had heard before. I said, Zachary, when you and I die, if you're right and I'm wrong, I have nothing to lose. But if, when you and I die, if I'm right and you're wrong, you have everything to lose. And tragically, he looked back at me and he said, well, Patrick, that is a risk that I am willing to take. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Your eternity is not something that you want to leave up to chance. You see, I am convinced that a day is approaching when the God of this universe will look each of us in the face and we will be held accountable to how we lived and maybe for you, why you chose to not believe. Is that really a risk that you want to take? I mean, if you want the evidence, if you want the proof, then it's there. I mean, I could show you how um, recent archaeological findings prove the accuracy of actual events and places described throughout Scripture. One example is this. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul greets a man by the name of Erastus, the city treasurer. For many years, they had no record that this guy lived because he was a government official. But recent discoveries in the city of Corinth revealed that a marble inscription on a, on a piece of pavement near the city theater that read this, Erastus, administrator of public buildings, laid this pavement at his own expense. It just so happened that that was writing done 2,000 years ago. I could even show you how a first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus acknowledged Jesus' supernatural presence and validated his existence and ministry. He writes this sometime after AD 37. Understand he did not have a bias towards Jesus. He says this, at this time there appeared Jesus a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. Now, I could continue with the proof, but you see, there comes a point in your life where you must make a decision on your own behalf. You see, God is not asking you to know everything about him, but he's asking you to trust him just enough to take that next step in your life. And so don't allow what you don't know about God to keep you from getting to know God. Matt Chandler recently said this, trying to figure out what God is like is trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. You see, the more you learn about God, the more you'll realize you, there's so much to learn out there that it's not even possible to learn it all. If I were sitting with you in a coffee shop, the last and most direct question that I would ask you is this. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? 
Is it, is it losing control? Is it that you don't want to face your past? Are you worried about how your future might change? I honestly think that some of us are afraid of what Peter says in verse 19, that our faith is built upon something that is completely reliable. Now, this makes us a little bit nervous because when you come to faith and you believe that God really is who he said he is, things in life just begin to change. I mean, no longer do you get to find satisfaction in that addiction that you have been involved in for so long. I mean, you don't get to determine how you'll treat your husband when your needs aren't met. You know that you might need to forgive a dad who neglected you at a very young age. While you may not die for your faith like Peter eventually did, if you choose to follow Jesus, it will cost you. And I got to tell you, I've, I've really struggled with this. You know, I look back on um, when I've been following Jesus and I realize that when I'm afraid, I tend to doubt. And when I doubt, I tend to be afraid. I mean, isn't that some of our stories in here too? I mean, sometimes doubt for me can just be an excuse to not live the way that I know I'm called to live. When I worry, I doubt God's ability to be in control. When I obsess over a certain hobby, I doubt God's ability to provide ultimate satisfaction. And when that happens, God always reminds me of one thing, and this is the place I think many nuns are at today, and it's this. Whatever you are afraid of giving up for the sake of Jesus... Whatever you are afraid of for the sake of following, whatever you are afraid of giving up for the sake of Jesus, it'll just be an exchange for something greater. And there's no way for me to prove that other than for you to actually step out and start following Jesus yourself. I promise you, you won't regret it. You see, faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. It's more like a trust found within the confines of a relationship. And maybe just maybe, you have a hard time trusting God because the last time you trusted somebody in your life, they betrayed you. Jesus is different. He's way different. In just under a month, um, we're having what's called Baptism Weekend. And this, is where we'll, this will be where many people in our community and church will go public with their relationship with Christ and perhaps this will be an opportunity for you to look up in God and say, I don't know everything. I've still got a lot of questions, but I'm going to decide to trust you. I'm giving my life to you. But if you're not there yet, and you're still skeptical of this whole Jesus thing, let me just ask you to do one thing for me in the next four weeks. Ask God to reveal himself to you and see what he would want you to do on the weekend of November 9th and 10th. Now the band is coming up here and they're gonna lead us in a song of worship. And as they do that, you'll notice that on either side of our worship center here, there are pieces of paper with names written on them. And we want everyone to be a part of this. And for that to happen, we'll need participation from two groups of people in here. And so the first group, first group of you is this. If you're not there yet with Jesus, if you're curious but still wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian, would you just have the courage to step out of the row and write your name with a Sharpie on one of those sections on the wall? Now, you're not a project of ours, but you're a valuable person who matters to God. And by writing your name on the wall, here's what you're telling us. You're inviting us to pray for you, to care for you, and be there for you. 
And putting your name up there will just be an invitation for us to love you like Jesus. There's no pressure for you to do this, but maybe this is just a way for you to tell God and yourself that you're open to knowing more and exploring questions. Now, the second group of you, you have people in your life right now who don't know Christ. And as Todd previously said, this person is maybe a neighbor, a coworker, a relative, or a friend. And I hope you've been thinking of that name throughout this service. This person isn't a project. But this is a person who matters to God, someone he can't stand the thought of spending eternity without. And so by writing their name on the wall, here's what you're saying. I commit to listening to this person. I commit to loving this person and praying for them regardless of anything. You see, it's really just gonna be a step of accountability. And so who is that person in your life? Again, there are little Sharpies in the baskets on either side of the pieces of paper on the wall. And so at some point in this song that we're about to sing, just step out of your row and write your name or the name of somebody that you love in your life and just put it there on the wall. It's not about the walls. It's about names that God cares about.